as we think about Malachi and what God has been saying to us, you can kind of look back in chapter 3 and we can say, specifically verses like 3 through 5, there's this question that rose to the surface and it was this, who can stand? Who can endure? And the, the, really it boils down into this question, if, if you if you die and stand before the Lord, can you stand and make excuses for your sin? Can anyone give reasonable explanation of why we sinned? And, and the answer that we came to is, is no. No one can. No one can stand before God in that way. And I mentioned some passages from other prophets in the Old Testament, specifically Nahum, and he accurately says that the only hope that a person has in that kind of a scenario is by taking refuge in the Lord. Who can stand? And then he answers his own, his own question and says, only those who took refuge in the Lord. And so it's interesting to me, and I think this leads us into verses 6 through 12 that we're going to look at today. It's interesting to me that the Bible really always does this. It talks about how the only way for a person to be saved from God's wrath and punishment and justice is to run to God himself. Isn't that seem backwards to a lot of us? Jesus does explain this a little bit better. He's, he's talking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That's where the famous John 3.16 verse comes from. But he's talking there and he says, he says to Nicodemus, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So if you remember that Old Testament story, they were being bitten by snakes and the only way for them to be saved from the venom of killing them from those snakes was to look to a bronze snake that had been fashioned and put up on a pole. That's how they were saved. And Jesus puts himself there talking about being raised on the cross. Now, hopefully this principle plays out in our families to some degree too, though. I think of when a child finds themselves really in the grip of sin and they come to that realization they've disobeyed the clear lines set by mom and dad whether you're 18 years old or whether you're eight or whether you're just a few years old when you realize that what is the solution for reconciliation between child and parent now so often and kids you can listen to this too so often, I think, as kids especially, but adults fall into this trap, we think, well, they're mad at me, so I'm just going to avoid them. And to some degree, we tuck our tail between our legs and we hide and we avoid them. We don't confront. We don't confess. They're mad at us. That Surely they don't want us to talk to them. Maybe the flip side, we think, well, we want to make up for it. So I'm going to do a bunch of extra chores and be really good to make up for it and win my parents' love back put me in favor again. But moms and dads, what's the real solution? Like what's, what's the real solution for reconciliation? It's not avoiding us. It's not trying to work real hard to earn our love back. It's what? Just come, run to us, seek forgiveness, repent, right? But you don't run away from those in authority. You run to them. This is what parents want. I think this is what God wants too. And, and I think this is exactly what God begins to express in our text for today. Read, read with me and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together. 
chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Verse 9, you're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you, and thereby put me to the test. I'm sorry. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine and your field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, there's some really good stuff for us to hear. It's... There's some really good stuff that will challenge us deeply that we need to hear. And there's some really good stuff that will comfort us deeply. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to stick in it for both, for all of it, because it's good. Your word is good. You're good to us in this. Even when you're refining us, when you're calling us out, when we're telling us that wrong is wrong, you still plead and say, return to me, and I'll return to you. So, Lord, I pray that this would be both a kick in the pants, but also a healing balm for us today. In Christ's name, amen. So look at verse 6. This I've mentioned this probably a couple of times in our time in Malachi already, just kind of pointing forward to it. Now we've reached it in verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. This, I hope, is one of the greatest anchors for the Christian soul. Despite the changing culture, despite all of the uncertainties that come living this life in a broken world, despite even our own unfaithfulness, we know this to be true. God does not change. Consider that. Think about that. His character, his eternal purposes for the world, for you, are completely unaffected by anything that happens in this world. This is referred to as the immutability of God. God is immutable. It means he does not change. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So his character does not change. But verse 7 is interesting. Verse 7 shows that this doesn't mean that he's unchanging in his actions. His character remains the same. His eternal purposes are unswerved. And yet, verse 7 shows that he is not unchanging in his actions. Look at that with me. He says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I think this shows that God acts differently in response to different situations. Uh, we see this concept play out with, with Jonah, don't we? If you remember, after he finally gets to the place that he's going after being spit out by the, the large fish. He goes around the nation of Nineveh, who he was fighting going to. And he goes around and he preaches one of the worst sermons you'll ever hear. 
he says basically 40 days Nineveh is going to be overthrown, undone. And he just, he doesn't like the people there. He's angry about even preaching it, but so that's what he does. He just goes back and forth and he preaches this message. And what happens? Jonah chapter 3 verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They heard this message. It was true. And they heard it and they believed God. And verse 10 of Jonah 3 says this, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We've often heard Second Chronicles 7.14 quoted regarding even our own nation. It's this, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. As Christians, we continue to believe in an immutable God who is unchanging in his character while also believing that if we genuinely pursue repentance and humility and obedience, that that same God will forgive and will restore. Do you realize what this type of response to God would actually indicate? If our nation would behave this way, as if we as Christians, as the church, would actually pursue God in this way, do you realize what that would reveal it would reveal that we properly fear the lord which has been a theme in what malachi has been saying malachi 3 i'll look forward to verse 16 it says the lord paid attention and heard those who feared the lord malachi 4 verse 2 will tell us but for you who fear my name The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Return to me, he says. Verse 7, return to me and I will return to you. But God doesn't start there. He actually, he starts with his immutability, his unchanging character. And what is the result of that truth? What is the result of God not changing? What does he say? I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The use of the term children of Jacob here I think is interesting. Uh, It seems to carry a couple different meanings for the people of Israel. So on one hand, it is a reminder, and it's a nice reminder, of the covenant that God made with their forefathers, with Jacob. This recaps, you know, what we said last week about the refiner, about the fuller and the soap and how... The, their goal wasn't to destroy the, the silver and gold or the clothing. Their goal was to, to clean it, to purify it. And that's what God does in his people through the work of sanctification. He purifies us. God remains faithful even when Israel hasn't. And because of that faithfulness, they aren't completely consumed. This is really something to be thankful for and rejoice in. Verses 6 and 7, they don't gloss over or attempt to rewrite history, do they? The term children of Jacob calls back to mind the kind of person that Jacob was before the divine blessing was bestowed upon him. In fact, the the Hebrew, if you just look this up in the Hebrew itself, verse 6 sounds like this. 
For I, the Lord, do not change, and you, sons of Jacob, have not ceased. So you could see how we might translate it, are not consumed, have not ceased. The fact is, though, that God has not changed, but Israel hasn't changed either. You, sons of Jacob, have not ceased. We see this. Look at verse 6. God hasn't changed. I, the Lord, do not change. But look at verse 7. Israel hasn't changed either. For from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. God hasn't changed, but Israel hasn't changed either. So God started his whole message. If you remember back chapter 1, verse 2, right after the introduction, he starts this whole message to the people of Israel, reminding them of his love. He said, I have loved you. Don't forget, that's, the, that's part of the backdrop of all of this. That hasn't changed. God is still saying, I love you. Return to me. Even though you continue to take after your father Jacob in being cheats and deceivers, return to me. Malachi, he doesn't idolize Jacob or the past patriarchs either, does he? He says, Man, from the days of your father's, You've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. He's not lifting them up higher than they should. He's recognizing this. So on the other hand, one hand, this is a beautiful reminder of the covenant that God has made with Jacob and the people of Israel. But on the other hand, children of Jacob was also, I think, meant to somewhat as a rebuke for their disobedience. Remember your father, Jacob. Remember the deception and the deceit, the lies and yet, even though you're faithless, and even though Jacob was faithless to some degree, God would remain faithful to him and to you. The rebellion over the years, verse 7, has led them far from God. But this verse also reveals that restoration is possible if they repent and if they desire change. So God is faithful to his promises. But the people's own conduct, and this is what they didn't realize, that we'll see in a moment, their, their own conduct has resulted in this judgment from God, in this dis, difficult discipline. See, remember, they've been shamefully negligent in their offerings, their tithes. They weren't even keeping the outward signs, if you will, the outward evidences of religion. Now, now be sure we, we keep on track here. We keep track of what's going on. It's not all about the show. It's not all about the outward actions. They've been continuing to offer outward sacrifices, right? They were just bad ones. They were half-hearted. They were leftovers. Uh, they were even offerings that they stole. And the kind of offerings they were given disgusted the Lord. He said he would rather them just quit it altogether than continue doing that. And yet, the outward actions eventually reveal the true condition of our hearts. That's an underlying principle here that we'll hit a couple more times. Let me say it again. Our outward actions eventually reveal the true condition of our heart. So Jesus has this in mind, kids, when he says what Jason quoted earlier, when he says, out of the heart... The mouth speaks. Justification in Christ always leads to fruit in the believer's life. 
Salvation always equals a change in our lives. Now on the surface, verse 7, Israel's response looks correct, right? How do they respond to this? They say, how shall we return to you? Again, that looks on the surface okay. How should we respond? But in digging deeper, we find that this isn't a question of clarification. It's a question of contention. Okay, they're not trying to clarify. God, they're not asking God to clarify like, God, we want to come back, but how do we do it? That's not the underlying thing here. What they're actually saying is they're contending with God. I think the New Living Translation renders this really well, where it says, how can we return when we have never gone away? That's the real question that's being asked here. It's not how do we do it because we want to. It's how do we do it? We're still here. We haven't left. We're good. God, what are you talking about? We haven't left. When I was younger, uh, probably 10 or 11, I was on a small, I was in a, a part of a small Christian school. And so, I don't know, there were probably 20 or 30 of us. And we went to the state park in Troy to have a meal, eat a snack in the afternoon and play and that sort of thing. And so we're doing that, having a good time. I was probably 10 or 11. And a friend of mine and I decided we were going to go and explore one of the paths, the trails that go off of those kind of pavilion areas. No big deal. You know, we're, we're young men, 10 or 11, we can find our way. So we head down this trail and we're having a good time. It was pretty good weather, everything like that. We're walking for a bit. We didn't realize we were lost. We also didn't realize that we had been walking on a horse trail. And if you, if you know any, anything about walking trails versus horse trails, there's a, there's a big difference, which I didn't realize. And so we're walking on this horse trail and we're getting further and further away from where we're supposed to be without realizing it. Well, now all of a sudden the sun starts getting a little lower in the sky. And one of us realizes, do you, do you know where we're at? And the other one is just as lost. And so all of a sudden panic begins to set in, right? We have no clue. We're on a horse trail. We shouldn't be out here. Uh, horse trails are a lot longer than walking trails. They go through a lot different terrain than walking trails do. And so we're lost and we're wandering around and the sun keeps getting lower and lower. Eventually, um, we found a, a road, an asphalt road, and it was like, it was like we're at sea and we finally reached the shore and we want to kiss the ground. We were so excited to see this asphalt road. And, and we, so we're walking on that and eventually a, a very kind, praise the Lord, a very kind man in a truck pulls up and we flag him down and he takes us back to the pavilion area and, uh, the police call is canceled. They found us. So, uh, we were found. And yet I think this, this story and, and my foolishness illustrates the point of what Israel is dealing with. And maybe you can identify. We were so lost, we, we didn't even know we were lost. Israel is so lost, they don't even see it. They don't even realize it. And, and it proves this point too. When you're unaware of how you've gotten, to where you are, finding your way back to where you need to be is really hard. Maybe not impossible, but really difficult. Israel is saying, why do we need to return to you? We, we're, we haven't left. 
And they were so lost, they couldn't even see that they were. Now, I think some of this is arrogance, but I think a lot of this too is complacency. They had let things slide. They weren't, their heart was not in this. And it was like, whatever. What do you mean we're, we're lost? So Israel was guilty of both arrogance and complacency. And I wonder if sometimes we are too. Thankfully, God's plan for believers today includes something that the Israelites didn't have the privilege of fully, the inner working of the Holy Spirit. So when Christ ascended into heaven, you might remember, he said it was better that he actually go so that the comforter, the Spirit, would come. Now, Christian, you are sealed with that Spirit by the washing of the blood of Christ, and you have him as your guide to reveal sin, to point it out, and to bring you back to where we need to be. Praise the Lord. And God, through Malachi... For the people of Israel, he's revealed their lack of proper worship. He has pointed out their idolatry. He has made very clear their overall faithlessness. And if you look in verses 8 and 9, God begins to pinpoint the heart of the problem. And I read this week, kind of a play on words, but it says, the heart of the problem was the problem of their hearts. And what came out? What was eventually revealed was their misuse of what God had given them. We'd already seen glimpses of that in their offerings, right? They were stealing from others to give an offering. They were giving God their sick and lame and leftover worship. So we've seen a little bit of this, but verses 8 and 9 give a little different aspect to it. Read them again with me. Will, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. Here's their answer, but you say, well, how have we robbed you? And here's God's response. In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. So they were asking, how can we return when we've never departed? And God all of a sudden says, well, hang on a second. Look at your checkbooks. They didn't have checkbooks. They didn't have bank accounts. But he says, look at what you use that you have authority over, you have been given. How do you spend it? For us today, I would say, look at your checkbooks. Check your receipts. Will you rob God? It's true that what they had in Malachi's day was not what they expected. Right? I read from Psalm 128 this morning, and it talked about the blessings that come with those who fear the Lord. Talking about healthy families and prosperity in some degree. And the people of Israel are saying, where's that? That's what I expected. All I got is what this is. This is, this is not what we thought. So it wasn't what they expected. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. Let's go back there for a second. God has said this, he said, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. So they had a proper sacrifice, didn't they? They had a male, they had a good sacrifice, a proper one, an acceptable one, and yet they chose God to give them their leftovers. They wouldn't offer that, he goes on to say in that chapter. He says, you wouldn't offer that to your earthly governor authority, am I supposed to just accept it then? Nope. God wanted and deserved the best that they had. 
Early on in, in Malachi, God is dealing more so with the quality of their offerings. You're not giving your best. But here it seems like God's also tackling the problem of the quantity of their offerings. You're not dealing with what you have properly. Now let me be clear in this because churches get a bad rap for being all about the money. Right? I've been, to, I've been to churches, and every week they're asking for more and more money. You may feel that way when you come here. We talk about an offering. We talk about giving. We talk about missions and opportunities to give. I just want you to understand, quantity alone, quality even alone, is not just what God is all about. God is not all about the money. Our church is not all about the money. The thing is, money reveals where your heart is, which is what God is actually after. Do you see the connection? We can't miss it because I think that's the biggest point here. God wants your heart and how you spend your money shows whether he's ha- he has it or not, whether he's captured it or not. But again, the people, they don't see what the big deal is in verse 8. They say, how have we robbed you? Explain this to me. He answers in your tithes and contributions. So the law of Moses that they were under had a detailed system of giving based on a tithe. You can see some other passages in your notes from Deuteronomy and Numbers, Nehemiah that I linked here. You can look those up and understand. So a portion of the tithe was given to the priests. This is kind of how they survived, what they were given as compensation for their work in the temple. But before even the law was given, we can't say, well, we're not bound by the law anymore. But before even the law was established, Abraham gave a tithe. 10% is what tithe means. He gave that tithe to the high priest Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And so I don't think that we should look at this passage in Malachi about robbing God and about tithes and contributions and opening the storehouses and all these things. I don't think we should say this is only about money. But I also don't think we can excuse it away and say this is not, this is not about money at all. Okay, they're connected. If God cared nothing for how people use what he's given them, there would be no indication in the law about tithing. Abraham wouldn't have needed to give anything to the high priest Melchizedek. And there would be no instruction in the New Testament about giving either. But the law speaks about money very clearly. And Jesus teaches about money because where he said, he says, where your heart is, finish it with me, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Okay. And so or I think I switched that around, actually. That's probably why none of you quoted it with me. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, pastor will get it right eventually. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this proves what we've quoted twice now. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What happens in our hearts is revealed in our actions. Are you with me? You see this? Jesus is making this clear. Malachi is making this clear. And this shows that our our hearts and our receipts seem to be intimately connected. It's a temptation then to, to put this in purely a legal sense. Okay, well, I'm going to give such and so percent. I'm going to do this. Okay? It's, it's, it's easy to get legalistic about this. But I think we would do well to remember... 
that the people neglected to pay their tithes and contributions, not because of a physical reason, but because of a religious reason, unbelief in God. They didn't trust God. And so they didn't give. In fact, they, remember, they said, where is the God of justice? Where are you? And so their, their lack of giving was a result of a religious problem, not a financial one. Okay? It was a lack of belief in God in their heart. So it doesn't seem that God really cares for them. He said they, they felt this way. It didn't seem like God really cared for them or he was really there. So why bother giving? Why bother tithing? This was their rationale. And so the return to belief in him couldn't be seen in a more clearer way than tithing and contributing to the temple again. That was the outward proof that they were trusting God again, that they believed him and took him at his word. See, it's not just all about the money. The New Testament says giving money joyfully and that it should come from a willing heart. So God's still after our hearts, brothers and sisters, and paying the tithe for the Israelites with joy was an evidence that they were believing God again, that they were returning to him. But because they were robbing God, what happened? You can continue to see that in verse 9. It says that certain judgments came upon them. Verse 9 describes these consequences they were facing. It says, you are cursed with a curse. The whole nation of you is cursed with a curse. Skip forward to verse 11 for a moment. This kind of uncovers a physical and economical aspect of this curse. God is speaking and he says, I will rebuke you. Returning to him, he says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Oftentimes we see this word and we think of the enemy, Satan. Here in context and just by the Hebrew word, devourer literally means eater. It probably was referring to swarms of locusts. Something, some kind of worm maybe that was literally devouring and eating their crops and it was a judgment upon them for their behavior. And you can imagine locusts, we have lots of different chemicals and ways to avoid these sorts of things in our nation now, but you can imagine in that time when they didn't have all of those things, you get a swarm of locusts in your field, it's over. You have no way to eliminate all of those tiny pests. So a swarm of locusts was a terrifying thing for an agricultural community. Apparently, though, this was part of the curse that Israel was actually bringing upon themselves. And they didn't see it. See it with me. They didn't see it, but their belief, or rather their lack of belief, was actually self-destructive. These things, parents, we, we see this in our kids. And parents who have kids my age and older, you see this in us. Our own sin is self-destructive, isn't it? We don't see it oftentimes, but we're actually hurting ourselves. Absolutely, we're offending God. Absolutely, we're affecting those around us, but we're certainly affecting ourselves. It's self-destructive, and that's what he's getting at here. Verse 11 says that God would not only give a fruitful season so that their crops would spring up well, but he would also guard those crops from anything that would uh, kind of hurt them before they were harvested. Why would God do that? Why would God say, I'm going to, I'm going to rebuke swarms of locusts and I'm going to keep your crops safe so that they'll produce for you. Why would he do that for a faithless generation, for a faithless people? 
Go back to verse 10. Here's the test. Read it with me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Some versions say until the storehouses are full. Bring the full tithe, he says. Bring everything that I've asked of you that's been required of you. Bring it as you should. Don't sacrifice to me the sick lamb. Bring the best one. Don't offer me the goat that you stole from your neighbors. <laughs> Give me the one that you've been tending personally to, that you've been feeding by hand. Give me that one. Give me your best. Don't bring God your leftovers. Bring Him your best, brothers and sisters. Bring God everything He's called you to bring, not just a portion of it. See, the Levites, the priests in that day... As I said, they would take some of the tithes, some of the contributions that were given as their kind of pay, if you will, and they would put it in rooms, chambers, or storehouses. But now everything was out of whack. Things weren't right in Israel. The priests were not doing their priestly duties, were they? They were accepting bad sacrifices. They were divorcing husband from wife, participating in the evil not behaving like spiritual leaders should at all, should, were they? The people weren't being honest either. They weren't being faithful and bringing their tithes and contributions to the house of God. And so the storehouses, you could say, were bare. Cupboards were bare in Israel. And because of it, not only did the priests suffer, but everyone suffered. The whole nation. God says, you're cursed with the curse, the whole nation of you. This was affecting everyone. But if they would return, God could make things right. And God offers this incredibly, this is incredible to consider, guys. I, I couldn't think of hardly any other situations in Scripture where God offers this kind of thing, where he says, put me to the test. But he does. He says, he offers this as a test. And I think it's connected to the phrase, return to me and I will return to you. And I think it's connected this way. If they would believe God and trust him with their possessions, if they would believe God and trust him with their futures, God would, as he says, open the windows of heaven for them, pour down for them a blessing until there won't be enough room to receive it, until their storehouses are full and running over. This is the test. The storehouses that lay bare because of unbelief would not be able to contain the blessings that God would give. Do you see the reversal here? It's as if God is saying, go ahead. See if you can outgive me. See if you can be more faithful than me. Try it. Now look at verse 12. Now we see the result. When people believe God and trust him in this way, verse 12 says, then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me, and if you return, these blessings are waiting, and when I bless you, what's the result going to be? The surrounding nations are going to see the Lord's deliverance. He's going to see the protection from the decimation of crops. He's going to see the land bearing good fruit, and when they do, they won't just be like, wow, I wonder what Israel put on those crops. They're not going to be like, I wonder... 
how they did that. They're going to know. They're going to see this was God's doing. They're going to call them blessed. That's the result. It's not about the storehouses in Israel being full. It's not about them boasting to neighboring nations about how much they have. It's about God's faithfulness and how it's revealed in them trusting him. Perhaps then they will see and understand that God has blessed his people so that then they will be a blessing. The same can be said for God's people today. Brothers and sisters, you have been, if you, if you believe unto salvation, you have been wrapped up in a family, not just so that you would be able to receive blessings, although God gives them bountifully, but so that you would go and then be a blessing. Take it to the nations. So in consideration of what we've talked today, I hope to be helpful in sharing just a few thoughts about giving, about our wallets. And I realize nobody wants to hear a message about money, but the Lord knows we need it. We need reminders now and then. This is not, uh, this is not a campaign to get you to give. We don't have a special big offering for you to give to. I certainly am not looking for uh, a salary increase. This is simply a way, a gauge, if you will, like the tire gauge of where our hearts are. So here's just a couple, I hope, helpful points. And some of these are going to be taken from New Testament writings. Um, you can see I've listed them in your notes. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 9 are some important passages about giving. Caleb, our brother elder, preached a couple of years ago about why we give. We were going through a series about why we do what we do when we gather together. And he preached about why we give and mentioned the fact that as New Testament believers, we're under a different covenant, and therefore the tithe of 10% is not something that hangs over us, and yet we are called to give. And if you look through the ideas of the difference between tithing and giving, certainly God would not want us to give out of obligation or begrudgingly that 10%, but he also wants us to be generous in tithing. So that may be 10% for some. That may be less than that for some. That may be a lot more than 10% for some. Here's some principles that help us to understand, maybe that we could say we should be governed by when it comes to giving. Number one is be generous. Don't, don't think, what's the minimum I can give and be okay with God? Uh, doesn't that reveal the kind of heart that Israel has that Malachi is rebuking? What, what do I have to do to get by to make him happy? Is it, imagine your spouse or your kids coming to you and asking, what do I have to do for you to love me? It doesn't seem very genuine, and certainly you wouldn't like that. We shouldn't like that. So be generous. Remember, the heart still displays what is going on I'm sorry, our, our giving displays what's going on in our hearts. And a heart that says, what's the bare minimum, still kind of reveals a heart that isn't truly trusting God. Number two, give freely. Don't give out of guilt or manipulation. I, I try hard not to be that way. We as a, as a church make a point not to get on you about giving all the time. And yet we encourage you regularly, give as the Lord leads. 
give freely. Don't do it out of guilt. We certainly don't insist that members of our church give any specific amount, but we intentionally encourage you to give as the Lord leads. And in some seasons of your life, that may be less than 10%. Some seasons of your life, it may be a lot more than that. That's good. Give generously. Give freely. The third thing is just be cheerful about it. Be joyful. If you give, if you give an offering and you're not happy about it, God will use the funds that you give. Don't get me wrong. God will use those things for His kingdom and for His glory. But you don't receive any blessing from it. Right? Give happily and with joy, not under protest, not begrudgingly. Give generously, give freely, give cheerfully. And just four, fourth thing, this isn't all of them, but just the fourth big one that I want to encourage you with is give sacrificially. Don't give what costs you nothing. We don't offer goats and sheep nowadays, but don't give what off, what you, what costs you nothing. Give as the Lord leads, being sure to not just give him what's left over. That's temptation. We've got bills to pay. We've got, I've got kids that need braces. Money is tight. I get it. But if we never make a plan to give, we never will. And, and that's where I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 9 it comes in. It talks about how every person should, before they give, make a plan. How much are we going to give? And they're supposed to give according to the blessings that they've been given. And there's some principles there. So give sacrificially. Make a plan and give. God is not all about the money. Jesus pointed out that you can give a bunch of money with the wrong motivation and not be right with God. But he also pointed to the, the widow who had very little. And when she gave it all, he said, that's who you copy. It's not all about the total that you write on the check. It's about the condition of your heart as you give. And I hope to be clear on that today. See, God, it's not all about the money with God because God doesn't need your money. He is the creator of all. He is the sustainer of all. He owns it all, brothers and sisters. Acts chapter 17, verse 25, clears this right up. It says this, He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And before that, it says he's not a God that needs to be served by human hands as if he needed something. He's got it all. He, In fact, he's the one who gives it all. God doesn't need our money in that way, but if how we spend our money is an indication of where our heart is at, then we should use our bank accounts for his glory. Now, if this is you, if you haven't been faithful in giving, I want to encourage you, challenge you, but encourage you in this. Look at chapter, or verse 6 rather again. I, the Lord, do not change. Verse 7, return to me and I will return to you. Let me just point this out. The door, the door has been swung wide open. The dividing wall removed, the curtain torn, the roadmap to reconciliation has been drawn up and laid before you today. What are you going to do with it? It's not all about the money, and yet it is a gauge of where our heart is at with the Lord. I just want to end by quoting a couple of Bible scholars that are far smarter than me that hopefully will help us in this. 1838. Princeton Seminary graduate Thomas Moore says this, We must come back to God if we would have God come back to us. For it is we who have changed, 
not God. He is the same. For him to say, I will return to you is huge. It shows that reconciliation is possible, brothers and sisters. Take him up on it. Test him in this and let the overflow of your heart in giving show that he has your heart, that it belongs to him. Last quote. The message of all the previous prophets could be summarized in the single word return. The Old Testament word for repentance. The word invites the listeners to turn 180 degrees, reversing their direction. Instead of heading off towards sin, self, and contemporary idols, we are urged to turn around and look in faith to the man of promise, Jesus Christ. Look in faith to Jesus Christ, the man of promise today, in your giving and for salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I'm... I'm as guilty as any when it comes to being fickle in my giving. Both financially, Lord, as we've discussed for the most part today. But Lord, certainly this applies to how we spend our time. Certainly this applies to what we do with uh, what you've given us in, in every sense, Lord. And so we need you to straighten us out. I need you to straighten me out in this. Because it's not all about the money, Lord, but it it reveals our heart. And so if you've been revealing hearts of my brothers and sisters and listeners today, and maybe we've recognized there's a problem here. There's inconsistencies here. Lord, I pray that we would take verse 6 and 7 to heart and remember that you don't change, but that you've promised that if we return to you in repentance and in faith and in trusting you, Lord, that you who have not gone anywhere will be with us again. Lord, we're going to take you at your word in this and we're going to put it to the test. And I pray that you would make us the most joyful, generous givers that we've ever seen. Not just so that we can puff our chests out and, and brag. Certainly not, Lord. You wouldn't bless us if that were the case. But Lord, so that you might get the glory, so that we might say, wow, I, I didn't think it would work, but look at what God has done. Look at how much he's blessed. And then Lord, you would, you would take us there in standing and sitting in awe of your blessing and of your goodness and that we might then be motivated to say, I got to share this with somebody else. And we go and are a blessing then to someone else, Lord. This is the design that you have in mind. And I pray, Lord, that you would start moving things in our hearts to realign them to what you would have. Do that work in us today. In Christ's name I pray, amen.